as we look to our Lord in prayer. And our Father, as we're coming into your presence at this point now, where we have expressed our hearts to you, given of our tithes and offerings to you, you have something now to say to us. It's not based upon a, a pastor's opinions or preferences. It's based upon revealed truth, communicated, found in your word. What we want to do, Father, is word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, take absolute truth, relate it to the variables of everyday living, and allow you to speak to us from your word at our points of need, and there are incredible numbers of needs. This morning we are uplifting, obviously, the people in Florida as we have been in Texas. What strikes us, Father, is that in the stories about storms, such as Jesus in the boat with his disciples, Jesus didn't guide his disciples away from the storm. He didn't steer them around the storm. He led them into the storm. And there are incredible lessons to be learned in storms. And just as the general revelation teaches us that you are sovereign creator, the special revelation of your word points us to the Redeemer. We find ourselves between the now and the not yet of life, between the first and second comings of Jesus. And so much of these opening verses relate to that tension. It's a healthy tension. It's a time tension. But it's all governed by your sovereign control over time and your sovereign control over this world. It brings us comfort, it brings us peace, it gives us strength, and it points back to your sovereign purposes when you send Jesus to that cross to die in our place for our sins. We want to explore your word together. So Father, in these coming moments, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills, We've come here, Father, again to see Jesus and, and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. In J. Oswald Saunders' book, Spiritual Leadership, there's an incredible description given with regard to A.B. Simpson, these words. The crowning glory of his leadership was that he was a friend of humanity. He loved the person next to him, and he loved humankind. This tribute to A.B. Simpson illustrates the fact that the spiritual leader will have to be a lover of people and have a large capacity for friendship. David's peerless command of men sprang from his genius and gathering around him men of renown who were ready to die for him. So fully did he capture their affection and allegiance that a, a whispered wish was to them as a command. He would die for, they would die for him because they knew he would die for them. 
And when you read that, increasingly what speaks to your heart and to your mind is the whole idea of the way in which Jesus Christ has so impacted the Apostle John that now the Apostle John is impacting others. And Jesus' love for people in turn demonstrates John's love for people and full-spectrum discipleship's unfolding here. And what you see now is the interconnectedness of a disciple, Jesus, discipling the 12 minus 1, who disciple the next generation spiritually, and on and on it goes where we are multiplying followers of Jesus Christ. But as Second John deals with holding truth, doctrinally distinctively, now what John does in this third epistle is he begins to name names. He, he mentions Gaius in verse 1. He's going to mention a man who's hard to deal with diatrophies in verse 9. He's going to commend a man named Demetrius in verse 12. What he's now demonstrating is just as Jesus had impact upon people, now he in turn is identifying people and he is impacting them. He is not merely in love with doctrine. He is in love with God's people, you see. God's truth, God's people, and he combines them, as should we. 2nd John and 3rd John have got to be combined, not separated. So what I want to do now is we inch our way into 3rd John and we move from upholding truth distinctively and doctrinally to upholding truth relationally is to draw out now two distinguishing features that I find here about the way in which we go about developing God-honoring relationships. Fits in well with our life groups, fits in well with the way in which we do youth ministry, fits in well with all capacities of ministry here. And the first flows out of verse 1. Verse 2, we'll put it this way. God-honoring relationships are distinguished by, number one, the wellness we desire for each other. The wellness we desire for each other. And you say, Gary, where do you get wellness? Well, you're going to spot them here in the opening verses. And it's fascinating the way in which the Apostle John is going to combine not only truth and love, but furthermore, body and soul. Holistic medicine is unfolding in verse 2 in particular. We've got to get there through verse 1. Notice how he begins. The elder to the beloved Gaius. Pause there. He doesn't say the Apostle John to the beloved church leader. In other words, what I see here as he now identifies himself with his position is a combination of authority and humility. He is putting emphasis upon the name Gaius, not on the name John. Where do you place your emphases in your relationships? Your conversations deal with the pronoun I, or do you demonstrate a capacity to be more concerned with the you? How are you doing? What's up with you? And how does that impact your parenting? And how does that affect the way in which you handle day-to-day experiences in your school, in your workplace? There is something being said at the onset here as to who is identified and who is not. The Apostle John does not start off by pulling rank and saying the Apostle John too. There is an incredible humility matched with authority here, the elder. 
Now, the word elder comes from the Greek word presbyteros. The Apostle John now is approaching the age of 90. He's an elder chronologically, but he's also an elder spiritually. And what he's now burdened for is to be able to communicate to the next generation of people who are listening in to true truth, as Schaefer would have put it, the essence of what relationships are all about. You uphold truth doctrinally, now you uphold truth relationally, and they can't be separated from one another. And so we've got the presbyterus on our hands here, and we, we find out that this is John, because you're going to watch the phrasing, and you say, that's John. He's got his fingerprints all over these words, you see. Authority and humility. And notice furthermore, it's the elder, and he doesn't identify himself by name. He's not into his name. He's into Jesus' name and others' names. In fact, you're going to find next week he's going to talk about the name. The elder to the beloved Gaius. Now, he doesn't merely say to Gaius, nor does he merely say a Gaius, because there were four Gaiuses found in your Newer Testament. Notice the T-H-E, the beloved. In other words, he's acknowledging the fact that Gaius is highly respected by others and highly beloved by others. It's got to be incredibly affirming to Gaius because he's dealing with some pretty tough matters, as you're going to see when you begin to study this whole matter of Diotrephes and his impact upon that church and false teachings that are surrounding that church. Spiritual leaders need to be affirmed, need to be encouraged along the way. Hudson Taylor understood that. J. Oswald Saunders again. From its very nature, the lot of the leader is a lonely one. He must always be ahead of the followers. And though he be the friendliest of people, there are areas of his life in which he must be prepared to tread a lonely path. And this fact dawned painfully on Dixon E. Hostie, when Hudson Taylor laid down the direction of the China Inland Mission and appointed Hostie as his successor. And after the interview, during the appointment was made, the new leader, sensible of the weight of responsibility which was now his, said, quote, And now I have no one, no one but God, unquote. How do we handle the Hosties of this world? or the Elijahs of this world, who feel as though they're the only ones. We have to follow the Apostle John's approach at this point. He's highly relational in the way in which he takes doctrine and relates it to people. He is emphasizing, emphasizing and furthermore, he is connecting with the Gaius, and he is calling Gaius the beloved one, not merely beloved one. He wants Gaius to know that he's beloved in his community. Because Gaius is going to be carrying a lot of responsibility. I'm in my way year by year through spiritual leadership. Saunders book. The elders and deacons are working through second Mondays of each month. Here are some of the components that Saunders covers. Vision. Wisdom. Discernment. Courage. Humility. A leader needs patience and tact. Executive skill. Mocked by prayer. Manages his aloneness privately as well as relationships publicly. Fatigue. 
criticism, pressure, responsibility, delegation. Already developing a succession plan. He reproduces. There are expectations. There are time demands. He manages his family. Most importantly, there's his relationship with God. All of this means, then, that Gaius has got an awful lot that he might not emotionally be able to articulate day in, day out with regard to the issues that he's confronted with. And a lot of the people will not even know. But the Apostle John, as he's approaching 90 years of age and has stood next to Jesus, knows. And he wants to affirm this man and encourage this man and strengthen this man. Question, who are you affirming? Who are you strengthening? Who's the de-hostie of your life that needs to hear these words? I'm struck by the authority and yet the humility. He refers to himself as the elder, not the apostle John. To the beloved Gaius, not merely beloved Gaius, the beloved Gaius. And within beloved is that word love, which is so, so critical to the way in which the Apostle John articulates the relational aspect of the one who sent his only son into the world to die for your sins and my sins, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on at this point, and it's incredibly powerful. He goes on as he is discipling, mentoring, guiding, directing, whom I love in truth. Now, I is in the emphatic position in the Greek language here. The I here is in the emphatic position. Whom I love. But where? In truth. In other words, the Apostle John has this tremendous sense of boundaries of what's in, what's out. Now this afternoon when you're watching a favorite team play and somebody runs this incredibly crisp route and it's a sideline issue where the referee is standing there and the question quickly becomes inbounds, out of bounds. What you don't want the referee to say is that that might be inbounds to you, but it's out of bounds to me. That's relativism. What I want you to see here is that there is something within the sidelines that he is offering the culture, offering society. And where society wants to remove the sidelines, you and I know that in football terms, the entire game breaks down. Sidelines are critically important. So now what the Apostle John is offering you and offering me now are the sidelines of love. And the sidelines involve truth. Absolute truth. And so he says, whom I love in truth. And now we see full spectrum discipleship. We see multi-generational spiritual impact of leading people to Christ, to lead people to Christ, to lead people to Christ. I thought about the way in which one generation impacts the next. Eisenhower, in his memoirs, talks about General Fox Connor. Life with Connor was sort of a graduate school and military affairs and life itself, leavened by a man who was experienced in the knowledge of humanity and conduct. I can never 
adequately express my gratitude to this one gentleman. In a lifetime of association with great and good men, he is the one more in, more or less invisible figure to whom I owe an incalculable debt. And I thought of the fact that John is the invisible figure here. He has not even identified himself. He's willing to put the emphasis upon others, are you? And he's pouring himself in now to the next generation of leadership. And he's burdened that this man who will carry such incredible responsibilities internally with that church, externally in the culture, understand that this man, Gaius, is loved by the Apostle John, the last Apostle living in truth. And the sidelines have been established for you and for me. And then we think of the way in which Jesus Christ himself mentored the next generation of spiritual leadership, where there were 12 minus 1. But A.B. Bruce, in his book, The Training of the Twelve, shows the way in which Jesus imparted doctrinally and impacted life relationally. And so he created not simply a reservoir of truth, but a channel of truth. And now we see the dynamic unfold here. And what is interesting to you and interesting to me is that in this third John, he names names. Gaius, Diotrephes, Demetrius. So he is moving now from upholding truth distinctly and doctrinally. And while maintaining that, he moves towards the applicational side. And how do I connect this relationally? And he starts naming names. Who are the names in your heart this morning that need truth and love being applied where you've established the sidelines of biblical truth so they better understand what life is all about? Now, for a second time, he uses the word beloved. The elder to the beloved Gaius, you saw the first beloved there, whom I love in truth, and now this one who is seated at Jesus' side where, where people were being served at the Lord's Supper and was the one Jesus loved. Right by Jesus, Peter's wondering, who's going to be the one that betrays? John, who never refers to himself directly as the one whom Jesus loved, but you can spot it in his gospel account. Here's the humility and the authority rolled into one individual. Do you demonstrate that if you're a parent? And establishing the sidelines of truth and love? Loving and truth? The elder, to the beloved Gaius, there's your first beloved, whom I, emphatic, love where guidelines, sidelines, in truth, second beloved. Gaius knows that this man, who is highly influential, is also highly personal. D.A. Carson one time told me the story. He couldn't believe it. He was in the back of a worship service. And at the end, Dr. Martin Laurie Jones came up to D.A. Carson and said, I've been praying for you. That's affirmation. Lloyd-Jones was a brilliant physician turned pastor who communicated truth in Westminster Chapel and yet took the time to invest in a D.A. Carson. Beloved, second time now. And then notice what comes next. I pray. 
I pray that all may go well with you. Now when you are praying for someone, all the relational barriers, all the relational distancing are addressed. Bonhoeffer puts it this way, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother or a sister for whom I pray. No matter how much trouble he or she causes me. Because his face, her face, hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me, is transformed in intercessory prayer into the countenance of a brother or sister for whom Christ died. The face of a forgiven one. And now when you begin to pray as the Apostle John prayed for Gaius, you begin to see that person from a whole new perspective, from the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. And now the gap between you and that person begins to shrink. And the hurdles between you and that person begin to diminish. And now you find yourself doing as Jesus did as he would pray for his disciples in that upper room where the Apostle John learned so much about the way Jesus prayed. And now, next generation of spiritual impact, the Apostle John now informs Gerson, I'm praying. Now, you and I would be interested in finding out that that word prayer that is used here at this point, found in this text, Eukamai, is the very same word that was used by James in his book with regard to the whole matter of the human body. And when James spoke of the way in which those leaders gather around somebody in order to pray, would state in chapter 5 of verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray, you come on, for one another that you may be healed. And I find that fascinating at this point because the beloved one, Gaius, is finding out that the Apostle John here at this point is praying that all may go well with you and that you may be what in good health as it goes well for your body. Thus combining not only truth and love, but body and soul. A congregation that understands these kinds of combinations is a balanced congregation. Understands the values of the way in which all these matters fit together. And so, next generation impact, Apostle John to Gaius, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you. Now, what's interesting to me is that the phrase, may go well with you, comes from a word that carries with the idea of a good journey. A good journey. What fascinates me in this relativistic culture we find ourselves in is that there are a lot of people that talk about the journey of life but don't want to talk about the destination of life. They want to experience the journey but want to avoid any talk about, about the destination. Yet Jesus, who experienced the journey of life, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes where to. He's very destinational as well as directional. Not directional to the exclusion of destinational. Both and. See the balance there? 
Tolkien understood that. Frodo, quoting Bilbo, he used often to say, and I've marked this in the first book of Lord of the Rings, there is only one road. That it was like a great river. Springs were at every doorstep. Every path was its tributary. And then listen to this. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, to go out your door. You step into the road and you, if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. That's our culture today. And the fearful ones want to stay inside. But what John is doing as he relates truth in love and expresses love in truth, he is preparing Gaius and the next generation for the adventure of the journey. But bearing in mind that he himself, the Apostle John, spoke of Jesus being the way and the truth and the life. So he was both directional and destinational. And so if you're going to impact people relationally, you need both, not one to the exclusion of the other. So I pray that all may go well with you. And then here it comes. I want you to see the balance here. That you may, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Body, and soul, temporal and eternal, internal and external, not one to the exclusion of the other, held in check under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing is the word health here is from the Greek word that we get hygiene from, hygiene. And when you watch how Jesus Christ ministered to people, watch his touch. Because the book of Leviticus offered tremendous insights in how to maintain hygiene for the budding Jewish population. It's a brilliant book, Leviticus is, when it comes to matters of medicine, you see. Because this was no underdeveloped culture. God had already given a prescription of how to handle medical matters in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 in particular. Jesus Christ then, who's the great physician, as G. Campbell would put it, had a way of going across and touching those who were lepers, of touching those who he would then raise from the dead, and people are grappling with whether or not he's following Levitical code. But he's Lord of the code. And the physical at that point was to illustrate the spiritual as well as the eternal. And what we are dealing with now in our temporary culture we find ourselves in is that people are looking at the medical community and are wanting, in essence, glorified bodies now with advanced um, technology. But as the Apostle Paul put it in Romans chapter 8, in this whole matter of the now and the not yet, when it comes to the way in which we handle our bodies... For we know that the whole creation's been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I've been fascinated by the way in which world missions historically has been a cutting edge when, when the advancement of the gospel is such that a sanctuary for worship is placed on the same property as a school and on the same property as a hospital. Mind, body, soul. In other words, that's the ultimate in holistic medicine. And I thought about that when I was pondering again Leviticus chapter 13 and chapter 14 as it related to Jesus Christ. And as we find in 3 John verse 2, the plaque that appears in so many physicians' offices who love Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And then I pondered how that relates to what I was reading on cmda.org, Christian Medical Dental Association, their devotional for the week, where a physician who loves Jesus wrote, I didn't sleep well last night. So I was stumbling through the cafeteria seeking a cup of coffee. A short woman with red hair stopped me and said, you don't remember me. It's been a few years I'm a patient of your brothers. And when my husband was sick, you came in and prayed for him. He has not forgotten how important that time was for him. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray. I pray that all may go well. In other words, your good journey with you and that you may be in good health, physical, as it goes well with your soul, spiritual, combination of fact, truth, and love, body and soul, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, goes on. Did you ever stop to think about what you've done that has been truly significant in your life? Here I was, sleep-deprived, focusing on so many of my medical tasks and this woman, nearly a stranger, comes to me makes it clear that an unplanned moment in my life was more important than all the things that had kept me from sleeping that night. How does that work? I can only suppose God's Holy Spirit within us is faithfully accomplishing his work while we continue fretting over our small efforts. Every morning I pray, let me rise up and meet you and empty myself. Fill me with your presence. I suspect he honors that prayer and accomplishes what he will for his glory, no matter what my agenda and worries are. And I'm reassured and I'm convinced, reassured that God will be glorified through my life, even without my planning and convicted that I need to first fret less about my agenda because that which truly matters is settled in his hands and ends with this prayer, dear Father, Fill me each day and let my actions never hinder your work through me. Amen. Christian Medical Dental Association. And our combination effect is to have FCN, Faith Community Nursing, where we get regular updates on the health and the well-being, first, second, third people, all throughout the course of the week, week by week by week, and we see now the way in which the Lordship of Jesus Christ covers all these matters as we live suspended in the now and not yet aspects of modern day living 2017. 
And here's John, who is conscious of Jesus' body on that cross. And conscious of the way in which the glorified body was positioned in that upper room when Thomas put his fingers out to examine the body of Jesus Christ. Giving attestation, you see, to the claims of the one who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health, physical, as it goes well with your soul, spiritual. And you don't emphasize the body over the soul, but you also understand the essence of the soul that will lead towards ultimately that glorified body. And you nod your head to what William Booth wrote when, when the king of Great Britain asked him to pen some thoughts with regard to his memoir, Your Majesty. Some men's ambition is art, some men's ambition is fame, some men's ambition is gold, my ambition is the souls of men. And the Apostle John would have nodded his head to that, you see, because the Salvation Army was involved with the body as well as with the soul. And John, who stood there at the cross of Christ and examined the body of Jesus Christ and stood there in the upper room where the, where the disciple Thomas examined the body of Jesus Christ, the before and after effects, death and resurrection, pulls all this together for us. So we're distinguished not only, number one, by the wellness we desire for one another, and you see it here in verses 1 and 2, but second of all, with some giddy up and go, notice verse 3 and 4, because we also are distinguished by, secondly, the walk we take with each other in verse 3 and verse 4. So now you combine wellness in 1 and 2 and walk in verse 3 and 4. And it's interesting to me in which he connects the two because they are both necessary to one another. And he uses the physical to illustrate the spiritual. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. The brothers came. In other words, people are coming in and out of the Apostle John's life continuously talking about Gaius and the tremendous impact Gaius is having upon others. Now, are you ministering to other people so that those people know you're having an impact and that they are having an impact? And so they're able to say, my goodness, he just, he just texted me this week. She just emailed this me this week. Uh, he just, on Facebook this week, through social media, went out of his way to say, I want you to know how you are impacting others. Now that is a combination effect of a balanced congregation. Wellness and walk. Truth and love. Body and soul. Integrated, balanced under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I rejoice greatly when the brothers came. There's this in and out reports of people coming. Testified. The Greek word marturao carries with the idea of martyred. In other words, they would be willing to die for this testimony. They've seen it firsthand of the impact, Gaius, you are having on, upon others. Are you affirming each other with this kind of stuff in life groups? Well, we testify to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. And what this culture needs is a sense of what Schaefer called true truth. Ravi Zacharias, in a book, Jesus Among Secular Gods, uses a baseball illustration. He's obviously a believer. I remember watching a Yankees game. Well, that makes me wonder now. I remember watching a Yankees game a few years ago, and it was a critical moment in the game, and who else stepped up to bat but Derek Jeter? 
Baseball's ambassador of integrity for an entire generation. Listen carefully now. An inside fastball was thrown in Jeter, Winston Payne, clenching his teeth and shaking off his hand as a hit-by-pitch was called. And he slowly took a walk to first base. But then the replay gave us all a surprise. The ball never hit Jeter. It had passed right by. But only Jeter knew that. He had taken privileged knowledge and used it to his advantage and to the disadvantage of the Tampa Bay Rays. But here's what captures my attention here. Jeter was lauded on both sides for what he did. By the coaches and the managers, not only of the Yankees, but of Tampa Bay. In fact, one of the other team's coaches said he wished his players had more of that sort of gamesmanship, that win-at-all-costs attitude and resourcefulness. And now you begin to ponder, is this where we're at? Is this where modern life is at? And what do you do with the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Where we are not merely talking directional, we're talking destinational in absolutes in a relativistic culture that wants to do away with boundaries. And then Gaius gets this report. I could see the Apostle John texting him now. Hey, guy, I want you to know I rejoice greatly. These people that are coming in and out of my life, they're willing to die for this. March Rao testified to your truth. It's personal, but he doesn't leave it there. As indeed you are walking where? In the truth. But now notice the repetition, not once, but here it comes again. I have no greater joy, verse 4, than to hear that my children, in other words, the people he's led to the Lord, who are now leading other people to the Lord, who are now leading other people to the Lord. For the second time, he says, are walking in the truth. And I smiled when I read this out of the Atlantic. Tim Vanderbilt wrote, as he's watching what he now calls the elitism of walk. There's this frantic now weekend power walking, making up for the week's lack of locomotion. Furthermore, there is walking-centric conceptual art now in vogue. Furthermore, there are stylized, idealized, walkable life centers, which themselves must be driven to. If you're lucky, You'll find one with an indoor panoramic walking track. Whenever I tell people I'm going to walk somewhere utilitarian, like an airport or even a long-distance walk that seems quite prosaic to me, they always ask, are you walking for charity? What does that tell us? We're walking for Jesus. And when your life group, when your equipped gathering, 
when you're working with one on a Wednesday night, when you're investing in the students of the next generation of leaders, when you combine together this idea of wellness, when you combine truth and love, body and soul, you pull all this together for them and find various ways to communicate not only you are upholding truth distinctively, you are also communicating truth relationally. You've got something there. And that's quite a church. And that's quite a, that's quite a Christian. But this is the Apostle John modeling for us what his disciple, Jesus, modeled for him. Let's stand together. Names matter. They mattered to the Apostle John. Most importantly, they mattered to you. You know our name. You know the distinctive nature of each person in all these services this morning and the needs that are here. You see us struggling with the wellness factor. You see us struggling with the walk factor. We're here, but we're not there yet. So, Father, for the one in any of these services who came spiritually curious about what matters most, point them to the one who is not only directional but also destinational, who paved the way that we can come to you into your presence because of his shed blood, praying that they will now put faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. And for all who love you, equip us to still better love one another, And may this culture realize the significance of how love and truth, truth and love, get worked out practically in everyday life. And we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.